Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This is God's Word, and it's eternally true. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, you who are our strength and redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with the second half of verse 35 and then move to the first half. Um, One of the themes of my preaching, if you've been here any while, is for me to say that the church today has no grid to understand suffering. And in that, it reflects the world we live in. The world that we live in is opposed to suffering. Much of what goes on in the last few weeks of a person's life can only be understood when you realize that people think that removing suffering is the chief good. Uh, And so there is not a grid for the redemptive work that God does through suffering. And so we just hate suffering. And Christians reflect the world in hating suffering. And uh, so we drug it, we drink it, we amuse ourselves to death, we will do anything to escape suffering. But the Bible also tells us that God conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ through suffering. And Jesus, again and again and again, tells us that in this life, we're going to have suffering. He tells us, hey, I'm the master, and no servant is greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And all these things in Scripture, that, that even the things that Jesus says that are in red, you know, we just read right over them, we know them by heart, and we just don't give them any dignity, any consideration, any weight in our lives. And so there's this terrible situation today, which you see all over the communication devices, you know, Facebook, Twitter, uh, everywhere you look today, you see Christians, Christians who are angry because they're suffering. And the way we as Christians express that anger can vary. It's been particularly awful to watch during the COVID-19 pandemic, how many Christians just rail against the government. They're so angry that they're quarantined. They're so angry that they have to wear masks. It's almost become a confession of Christian faith that we don't wear masks. We'll show them. 
I went into Kroger on the east side yesterday, and I was shamed because I had left my mask in my car and everybody in Kroger on the east side, and I thought, isn't that a beautiful picture of the difference between the east and the west side? The west side's belligerent, and the east side is conformist, you know? And so the conformists wear masks and the belligerent don't. I should warn you that actually it's the east side that's rich. And educated. Now why am I teasing you like this, okay? Because everything about the world from the very beginning has always been about confusing God's people about why things happen to them. Satan wants, us to get, Satan wants to get us off our game. And the way Satan does that is he confuses us about what the real issues are. Are you with me? You understand what I'm saying? And if Satan can just confuse us about the real issues, that's all he has to do. Because then we're not watching God and submitting to him and loving him we're watching our neighbors, we're watching the media people, we're watching Fox, we're watching CM, whatever it is. And our eyes are off our master. And so, for instance, one of the things that's very common today is that Christians are so angry about the fact that they're taking our country from us. You know? And so we take the Black Lives Matter and racism and COVID virus and all this stuff. And we say, this is just a grand conspiracy to steal the Christian nation from its constitution and from those of us that it delegates its authority to. Citizens, you know. And we belligerate. We're very angry. And we begin to make arguments about what the founding fathers intended and what original intent is and, and how strict constructionism, you know, is going to help us get good justices and, and then, of course, meet the new boss, same as the old boss on the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just laughable that we've ever had any hope about the Supreme Court. All we're doing is fighting a retreat action decade after decade. I mean, I've lived long enough to be able to tell you young punks that. <laughs> It's just a retreat action. <laughs> and so we talk about the early church in America in, in colonial times in New England. But I know about that church. I just was talking about swarming, right? Well, that church was a church that, that created the halfway covenant. So this, this, this wonderful, wonderful church that was Christian, that founded our nation, they came up with a way that you could baptize the babies of unbelievers, I mean, some of you are Baptists and you're opposed to baptizing any babies. But if there is any purpose in baptizing babies, it is the babies of believers, right? But they came up with a way to baptize unbelievers. And then they came up with a way of giving the Lord's Supper to unbelievers. And that's the height of the Christian commitments of the United States of America. And why did they do it? Well, if you read Cotton Mather, he says the whole purpose for us coming over to these shores was to protect our lambs. 
What does he mean by lambs? He means their children. Why did they leave Holland? They went to Holland thinking that, well, in Holland, they found their children would be being corrupted by the next door neighbor. You know what I'm saying? So then they decided to come over to a pristine continent, you know? And within a couple generations, they found that their children were not believers. Are you with me? And so guess what they did? They invented the halfway covenant. And so if we want to belligerate about how this is a Christian nation and we have a right to have our Christian nation and our Christian laws, and specifically we have a right to First Amendment rights, freedom of religion. And so you'll, you'll go online and you'll see all these people talking about how we have a right to have freedom of religion. And I just laugh at them. I don't remember a time in my life when I had freedom of religion. I don't remember a time in my life where there were not a set group of truths that were biblical and that were godly, that were not hated by this world, and that if I opened my mouth about them, I'd be like wasted, <laughs> you know? When have we had freedom of religion? You think you have it today, go over to IU and try to talk about abortion. Try to talk about homosexuality on, on the campus of IU. Find out how long you have a job. And so Christians for decades now have been carefully, carefully retreating from a number of biblical truths in a very sophisticated way where we can lie to each other that we still are committed to those truths, but we can also escape persecution at the workplace. And this is the way we do it. And in the old days, they used to call it trimming because they'd take a coin. The coins back then had some basis in value because they were precious metals. And, you know, they just trim a little bit off the coin. So that in exchange, you didn't notice that a little bit of the precious metal had been taken off the edge. Now, that is called what? Debasing the currency. And that's what President Trump and Congress did when they gave us all checks. Okay? Those checks were stolen from your neighbor. Because when those checks were written, okay, there wasn't more value. What happened was the currency of the United States was debased by everyone's investments losing some value, you know? That's how that kind of thing works. It's not that the United States government had a bunch of gold sitting around, they decided to liquidate it and send checks to all of us, you know? And so what you have to understand is that modern culture lives off of borrowing money from generations, 10 generations from us. They will still be paying on the debt we borrowed. And so we're debasing the currency. We are stealing money from our great, 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 great grandchildren living off it today. They inherit the debt. Are you with me? And we know we're doing it. 
And the same thing is true of the church with the truths of God's word. We debase the currency. We go into scripture and we say, well, what does the world hate? Well, listen, right now what the world really hates is that God, from the beginning, made the male and female. Right? I mean, we all know this. Is anybody here awake? That's the central attack today, is the issue of from the beginning, he made them male and female. Okay? It's called dichotomous thinking. And that's not a compliment by the world. And so everybody thinks they have a right to choose their own sexuality. And from that flows the culture wars over bathrooms, right? We all know this. Christians argue that modesty and protecting our children requires us to take a stand. The Supreme Court rules that it's part of Title VII, right? You've all been following this recently, okay? And, and, and then Christians get angry and they say, you know, when are we going to actually have good justices appointed? And listen, people... Actually, it's not a big deal who's using the bathroom. Okay? If you want to assign what is a big deal and what is a little deal, it would be better for you to assign it to abortion. Okay? Because that man who's transitioning to a woman who uses the woman's stall is actually behind a locked door. All you can see is the feet. And so some of you don't know me, and you're sitting there thinking, is this, is this a wild man here? Is he actually arguing that we allow transitioning people to use whatever bathroom they want? And my answer is no. We have adopted a statement saying that in this church, we will deal with people on the basis of their biology assigned by God. I mean, doesn't that sound Christian? You know, if from the beginning God made them male and female, and we as a church said, ah, forget it. That's old and in the way. I mean, you know, what's the point of being a church? (laughs) You know, if we're going to cave on that. But I'm trying to say to you how we as Christians get offended when we get offended, where we get offended, where we assert our constitutional rights, which really are our freedom of religion, is number one, somewhat um, haphazard, and number two, often based on a premise that's completely wrong. And what is the premise? The premise is, as Christians... We have no rights. God has not given us rights. Okay? We don't have any. You say, oh my goodness, are you serious? What's the Bill of Rights? And I say, well, it's a construct. It's a political construct. And anyone with any intelligence knows that it's been being eaten away minute by minute. Right? We can go into a number of the particular uh, amendments, right? And we can show the hypocrisy of this one and the hypocrisy. I remember going into the Philadelphia archive, you know, exhibit where the National Park Service has interpreters in this room with all the documents, the Declaration of Independence, all this other stuff. And just on a lark, I went up to this guy who was in his 60s. He'd been there probably 30 years. 
And here are the documents. And I went up to him and I said, say, tell me something. Can you tell me what the 10th Amendment is? And he looks at me and he says, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, no. I mean, think about that. It's funny. It's awful. It's whatever you, you want to attribute to it, but he doesn't know what the 10th Amendment is. 10th Amendment is states' rights, you know? Unless explicitly given to the, the federal government, all the rights are eternally, all right, you know, it's states' rights, you know? It was a pretty important thing back at the time of the Civil War, <laughs> you know, but he didn't know. Listen, when I was in high school, being a typical American, I was very, very enamored of my rots. And I remember one time, I was in the kitchen with my mother, and I said to my mother, I have a right. And before I got the words out of my mouth, she was knowing where I, I'd be heading. And my mother, before I even finished saying it, I have a right, she said, Timothy, you have no rights. The Christian has no rights. Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you gave up your rights. And now all you have All you have is the love of God and Jesus Christ. And what more do you need? What more do you need? Where is your heart? Is your heart actually in the Constitution of the United States of America over there in that exhibit room in Philadelphia? You might say to me, well, if I don't have any rights, then what's the good of anybody becoming an attorney, and what's the good of being a constitutional attorney, and why, do, why are we thankful that we have attorneys associated with our church? And I say, well, because there is work to be done in this world, and all of us should fight in protection of the Constitution. And you say, well, you can't have it both ways. And I say, yes, I can. We have no rights and we fight to defend our rights. But do you know how someone fights who knows he has no rights in defense of his rights? Are you with me? He fights in a way that's kind of uh, cosmic, kind of disengaged but firm. You understand this. In other words, he fights in a way that it's obvious to everyone that this is not a life or death issue to him. And you say, are you saying that our ancestors were wrong for give me liberty or give me death? And I say, well, some of them, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to say that. So you say, well, you're saying you don't care about liberty? I say, oh, no, 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 I do care about liberty. And I care that the United States will stop its nanny state incredibly stultifying, oppressive, sentimental, feminine, silencing of men where you can't be a man in America anymore. 
I feel it. <laughs> you know, every man feels it, but you'll never get him to admit it because it would be unmanly to admit it. So he goes out and buys a gun, watches NFL. You know, there's still certain pockets of resistance. Yes, I care about liberty. I care about liberty. And every single time I see a dangerous uh, playground item outlawed, every time a quarry is shut, every single time it infuriates me. Because I know that's what makes men. Men have to see danger. Why? Well, because men are supposed to handle danger and if they don't see it growing up, how on earth are they going to handle it when it hits their children and their wife? <laughs> but I'll get off my high horse on that. I'll come back home, okay? My point is to say we on earth have, can anybody predict what I'm going to say? Just quoting scripture. Here on earth we have, anybody? No abiding place. Hebrews. We don't have our home. We don't have our nation. We don't have an abiding place. We here suffer. And so we can fight against oppression. We can fight against hypocrisy. We can fight against abortion. We can fight against every injustice that we want to. We can even fight against the injustices that are focused on us. Okay? But we fight knowing that it is the normal Christian life to suffer for Jesus Christ. And he's the one that sends that suffering to us. And he's the perfect steward of our suffering. And if you don't have a faithful approach to suffering, I pity you as a Christian because your life is going to be so confusing to you. Because that's how Jesus conforms you to his image. That's how the Holy Spirit makes you into his image. And so if you're always thinking that it's the world, that's the world done me wrong. And that's really, wouldn't you agree, that's most Christians today. You know, the government done me wrong, you know. And it's like, dude, did you think that the government owed doing you right? You know? And you say, yes, what about justice? And I say, well, yeah, but I mean, do we really think that there's ever been a time in history when there's been justice? I mean, isn't that the point of the last judgment? <laughs> Finally, something approximating justice gets done. You know, these, these young punks who are white that are out there, you know, standing for social justice. They wouldn't know justice if it bit them in the nose. All their judgments are completely foolish and, and superficial. 
You know, anybody who's been in court knows how sophisticated it is coming to a right conclusion, even when you have the witnesses right there testifying, right? You all know this, right? Being a judge is actually difficult, and they often make mistakes. Being a pastor is actually difficult. We often make mistakes. And so we work for justice, we work for the Bill of Rights, we work for liberty, and we always know that here on earth we have no abiding place. Okay? We don't belligerate. We take stands, we take principal stands. We might even die in fighting in Yorktown against the Brits. But we die like uh, Stonewall Jackson, if I can mention his name without having his statue torn down, you know, who says, you know, if I die, I die. He says, I'm as safe in my bed. That was the inspiration behind Jody and, and, and the song that we have. Sing it. Somebody sing it. Come on, sing it. Jody, you sang it. Didn't you sing it? Yeah, would you sing it? I'm as safe with you out on the field, the field of war, as in my bed. You are my shield. And so guess how, guess how Stonewall Jackson died? <laughs> it's, it's one of the hilarious moments of history. That man who had more courage and zeal and guts than any man I've ever read his biography of. And he died of friendly fire. <laughs> you know? I mean, who would do that but God? He was as safe out on the field as he was in his bed, and he died by the fire of his own men. People, we have to get our eyes off this world, and we have to get them in heaven. You're not going to be able to interpret coronavirus and the racial riots and the death of George Floyd. You're not going to interpret any of this stuff correctly if you just see it all having to do with the tearing down of America's constitutional tradition and, and you know, African-American this, and it's just like these things matter, and, and, and they do matter. But here on earth, what? We have no abiding place. We have no abiding place. So, here's what our text says. Our text says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then it lists, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or... Sword, which is capital punishment, which is what God gives to the civil authority. The sword, the gun, the noose, Okay. These things, brothers and sisters, are just givens. Do you understand me? They're not listed because once in a blue moon, Christians will suffer these things. This is the normal Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. And if you will begin to see with the eyes of Scripture, with the eyes of God, with the eyes of faith, what's going on in your life, again and again and again, you will see that you're suffering persecution for your faith. Not because you're stupid, 
but because you're godly. This is what we talked about last time. Now, I want to end by looking at the question that precedes this list of sufferings that we have to acknowledge is a constant in our lives. And the question is this, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Now, you may never have noticed this, but that question is ambiguous. Because in the question, it's intentionally stated and written in such a way that you don't know whether it's speaking of your love for Jesus or Jesus' love for you. For you. Okay? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Are we loving him or is he loving us? There's no indication in the question. It's ambiguous. Now, I want to take a vote. How many of you think it refers to our love for Christ? Okay, 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 now listen. So everybody's convinced it's Christ's love for us, okay. But do you notice the list of things that separate us? Do you notice it says who? And so this is very personal. These things are people. Who will separate us from the, and then it lists the things that people do to us. Now, those things are not things that will cause Jesus to change his mind. Oh, Tim just was persecuted. I think I'll stop loving Tim. I mean, you get my point? The list indicates that these are things that would cause us to stop loving Jesus. Persecution has caused many people to stop loving Jesus. All right, now, again, how many of you think this refers to our love for Jesus and that we would stop loving him because of persecution, because of execution, because of martyrdom, because of nakedness, because of famine? Come on, have some guts. So you've changed your minds. Okay, now, how many of you think it refers to Christ's love for us? In the first service, the same thing happened. It was like three people that thought it referred to our love for Christ, and it was like all the rest of us were just like, gaga, you know. Ah, it's Jesus' love, right? The love of Christ, how rich and poor. So I've always just assumed it was the love of Jesus, right? And I start studying for the sermon, and all of a sudden, I read somebody pointing out that this list is a list of things that would cause us not to love Jesus, to stop loving Jesus. And I think, oh, no, that's true. And so, of course, being a principled man with much strength, I immediately changed my mind. <laughs> I just, I was like, stupid me. I'm so ashamed. I'm 66, I'm a pastor, and I thought that? Stupid me. And then I read Robert Haldane. Scott from 150 plus years ago, Scott, Scott Presbyterian, and he says this. He says, the object of the apostle, he's speaking of Paul, the purpose of Paul here in this text is to assure us not so much of our love for God, but rather of his love for us. By directing our attention to his 
predestining, calling, justifying, and glorifying us. Oh, yeah, that was right above, wasn't it? Those whom he, he, those whom he, you know, he elected us, he chose us, he justified us, he glorified us past tense. You remember all this? And Paul is saying, look at it in the context. The Apostle Paul has been filling us up with the comfort and assurance of salvation that God doesn't stop the work he begins in us. And so this is what Haldane says. And then he says, and not sparing his own son. And you remember that was just above. He who did not spare his own, how will he also not give us all good things? In addition to this, says Haldane, it contributes more to our comfort to have our minds fixed upon God's love to us than upon our love to God. <laughs> oh, man, I read that and I just thought, when have I ever been comforted by my love for God? You know, how strong is your love for God? You can sing about it, but how strong is it? If you were going to face the executioner's block, would you go into the executioner's block to have your head severed with a sword, contemplating your love for God? No. No, you wouldn't. What you would do is you'd go into the executioner's block, contemplating his love for you. My love for God is so weak. But his love for me? His love for you? In addition to this, it contributes more to our comfort to have our minds fixed upon God's love for us and upon our love for God. For as our love is subject to many failings and infirmities, and as we are liable to change, remember I talked about how we say women are fickle, but men are just as fickle? Our love is not just weak, but it's also so changeable. To endeavor to impart comfort from the firmness of our love would be less effective than holding forth to us the love of God, in whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of change in loving his children. God makes them love him, and believers are enabled to love Christ because he loves them. It is he who first loved us and in loving us has changed our hearts and produced in them love for him. I read that and I completely changed my mind. And I thought, oh my goodness, this whole section is about God and it minimizes us. And it says, we have been elected, we have been called, we have been justified, we are protected. He who gave up his own son, how will he not freely give us all things? On and on and on about God. And then I, who will separate us from the love of God? And all of a sudden it's me? (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, it's me. Okay, so what's the solution? Who's right and who's wrong? 
we're all wrong. No, seriously, we're all wrong. So I got completely convinced of this and then completely convinced of this. And then I began to think. And I thought, you know, that's not how language works. What language does is language puts you in the middle and brings pressure from both sides. And language explodes. And the meanings are all there in the text. And so the meanings should all be there in our mind. We should never make a decision between the love of God or the love of us. But we should know that any love of us that, is, that survives persecution and nakedness and famine and the sword is there because he first loved us. We did not love him until he loved us. We did not choose him, he chose us. And I became convinced that it's talking both about our love for Jesus and his love for us. And which one would you like to be your anchor? Your love for him? Not one of us would say that. So two things and I'll be done. Number one, when I was young, I had a heavy, heavy, heavy burden of sin. An awful burden of sin. And even though I'd grown up in a Christian home, and that growing up in the home and having a father who taught me the fear of God had protected me from many sins, all that meant was that I was worse off than my next door neighbors who had no fear of God in their home because the things I had done had been against knowledge. They'd been against my Redeemer. And so I was a wicked man who sinned against his knowledge of God. And I sinned, and I sinned, and I sinned, and I had no hope that God would ever save me. Because I had sinned against knowledge. Are you with me? And then one night at the Swansons up in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, I went to a prayer group, and they had a brother there preaching. And he preached on the love of God. And I listened about the love of God. I couldn't believe it. That God would love me, you know? I was like, no. But he kept preaching. And I was like, maybe. And he kept preaching. And I was like, yes. And then God gave me an an ecstatic experience. And it went on and on and on and on. And I drowned in the love of God. Drowned in it. I could not outsin the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I couldn't outsin the love of God for me. And finally, I was at peace. Do you understand this? What's going to separate us from the love of God? We love because he first loved us. And so don't be afraid of COVID. Don't be afraid of persecution. Don't be afraid of First Amendment rights being taken. Don't be afraid of your cold heart. Because God, he's going to warm it up. He's going to warm it up. He's going to warm it up. 
Give yourself to the love of God. And then love one another. Now, I said two points. Here's my final one. We're way over, but... My second point is this. Right before I came in to preach in the first service, I read Calvin. You know what Calvin says? Calvin says, don't let them make you make a decision. It's both and. (laughs) Calvin says, it's both our love for God and his love for us. And so you're all wrong. Because you all voted. And you should have said, that's a bad question. (laughs) All right, we're just going to get up and I'm going to give the benediction. We're going to leave. Okay, if you want to sing the concluding hymn, you'll have to come back to the third service. Okay, let's stand. Our Father God, we pray that you will take our children especially here as they've grown up and come to see their sin, we pray that you will keep them from despairing and that they will throw themselves on your love. In Jesus Christ, they're on the cross paying for our sins. Give them a vision of the love of the Father in his Son. Our Father, we pray that you will keep us from being angry conservatives, that we will be loving Christians. And Father, we pray for mercy on our nation, that there may be an outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that the gospel may be preached in power, and that the reconciliation in Jesus Christ might be what the world falls in love with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.